listening to the podcast 82488. Yet the effect was dramatic. So too with hush puppies. How many kids are we talking about who began wearing the shoes in downtown Manhattan? 20, 50, 100 at the most. Yet their actions seem to have single-handedly started an international fashion trend. Finally, both changes happened in a hurry. They didn't build steadily and slowly. And that was a selection from today's book, The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Page eight, managed magically to intervene in a huge percentage of situations that would otherwise have turned deadly. What happened is that the small number of people in the small number of situations in which the police or the new social forces had some impact started behaving very differently. And that behavior somehow spread to other would-be criminals in similar situations. Somehow, a large number of people in New York got infected with an anti-crime virus in a short time. The second distinguishing characteristic of these two examples is that in both cases, little changes had big effects. All of the possible reasons for why New York's crime rate dropped are changes that happened at the margin. They were incremental changes. The crack trade leveled off. The population got a little older. The police force got a little better. Yet, the effect was dramatic. So too with hush puppies. How many kids are we talking about who began wearing the shoes in downtown Manhattan? 20? 50? 100 at the most? Yet their actions seem to have single-handedly started an international fashion trend. Finally, both changes happened in a hurry. They didn't build steadily and slowly. It is instructive to look at a chart of the crime rate in New York City from, say, the mid-1960s to the late 1990s. It looks like a giant arch. In 1965, there were 200,000 crimes in the city, and from that point on, the number begins a sharp rise, doubling in two years and continuing almost unbroken until it hits 650,000 crimes a year in the mid-1970s. It stays steady at that level for the next two decades before plunging downwards in 1992 as sharply as it rose 30 years earlier. Crime did not taper off. Page 24. Most likely at least one adult, probably a coal miner from Poland, Czechoslovakia, or Italy, brought the virus to Limburgh. This one adult could have died from AIDS with little notice. He could have transmitted the virus to his wife and offspring. His infected wife or girlfriend could have given birth 
in a Swedish barrack to a child who was HIV infected but seemingly healthy. Unsterilized needles and syringes could have spread the virus from child to child. Truly the strange thing about this story, of course, is that not all of the children died. Only a third did. The others did what today would seem almost impossible. They defeated HIV, purged it from their bodies, and went on to live healthy lives. In other words, the strains of HIV that were circulating back in the 1950s were a lot different from the strains of HIV that circulate today. They were every bit as contagious, but they were weak enough that most people, even small children, were able to fight them off and survive them. The HIV epidemic tipped in the early 1980s. In short, not just because of the enormous changes in sexual behavior in the gay communities that made it possible for the virus to spread rapidly, it also tipped because HIV itself changed. For one reason or another, the virus became a lot deadlier. Once it infected you, you stayed infected. It stuck. This idea of the importance of stickiness in tipping has enormous implications for the way we regard social epidemics as well. We tend to spend a lot of time thinking about how to make messages more contagious, how to reach as many people as possible with our products or ideas. But the hard part of communication is often figuring out how to make sure a message doesn't go in one year and out the other. Page 88. In many towns, virtually the whole British regulars, as they were known, were marching in formation toward the town as well. By dawn, the advancing soldiers could see figures all around them in the half-light, armed men running through surrounding fields, outpacing the British in their rush to Lexington. As the regulars neared the town center, they could hear drums beating in the distance. Finally, the British came upon Lexington Common, and the two sides met face to face. Several hundred British soldiers confronting less than a hundred militia. In that first exchange, the British got the best of the colonists, gunning down seven militia men in a brief flurry of gunshots on the common. But that was only the first of what would be several battles that day. When the British moved on to Concord to systematically search for the guns and ammunition they had been told was stored there, they would clash with the militia again, and this time they would be soundly defeated. This was the beginning of the American Revolution, a war that before was over would claim many lives and consume the entire American colony. When the American colonists declared independence the following year, it would be hailed as an independence the following year. It would be hailed as a victory for an entire nation. But that is not the way it began. It began on a cold spring morning with a word-of-mouth epidemic 
that spread from a little stable boy to all of New England, relying along the way on a small number of very special people, a few salesmen, and a man with the particular genius of both a maven and a connector. The end. And that was a book, The Tipping Point, by Malcolm Gladwell. From the fight of literature, you will find a story that touches your soul. Please support the authors in this show by viewing the books on the website 82488.com. That's numbers 8, 2, 4, the word 80, and the number 8.com.